0: G'day, Matt Moffat is my name. It's great to be with you this morning as we launch into Leadership Summit for this year. I'm on the senior staff team. I hang out and work with the EU's Ministry of Postgrads and um, academics and university staff, EU Postgrads and Staff or EPS for short, and also work with the EU's annual conference team. It's really great that we get this time in God's word to think about leadership. So let me pray for us again. As we reflect on this passage from Mark's Gospel. Our gracious Father, we ask that the words of my lips and the meditations of all our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Uh, If you will forgive me for a moment, let me take you back to 2020 or 2021 lockdown so, the only time I'm going to mention it. What was something new or different that you started doing during lockdown? Apparently there was a spike of new activities that Australians started doing, a global shortage of exercise equipment because we had nothing else to do. Stacks of people, and maybe you were one of them, were baking bread, sourdough kits were flying off the shelves of Amazon. Apparently Australians got really into pickling. I didn't know it was a thing. Anyone here pickle? Yeah, wrong crowd. Too young. Too young. Uh, For me, it was stargazing, really planet gazing, because I don't have the um, patience to look at the stars at night. Stargazing and cycling. Yes, like many men my age, I've donned the lycra and (laughs) set about trying to get fit when I'm on the other side of peak physical fitness. And out of those two lockdown hobbies, I found that cycling actually came with the biggest learning curve for me. It's not just the physical demands of cycling or the mental demands of staying focused and alert around traffic or on a big hill climb. I feel like I basically had to relearn what cycling is all about. The method I picked up while I was at uni was to ride as hard and as fast as you can, seeing in the highest gear as long as as possible grinding it out on the road until I had nothing left. Maybe I was working out some anger issues during lockdown. But that's how I thought you rode a bike. I was pounding my knees, revolution after revolution, trying to get as much power through my legs as is possible. Turns out that's not how you ride a bike. Turns out actually you don't cycle with your knees. And I ended up hurting my hemi I had to spend a lot of time and money at the physio just to get my movement back. But I didn't know what I was doing. I just thought that's how you did it. I was bashing and crashing my way through cycling. And someone had to take me aside at some point and say to me, Matt, Matt, you don't cycle with your knees. You cycle with your heart. <laughs> it seems very profound. And it's true the heart is the key muscle which determines how much energy you can put through the bike. You cycle with your heart. And what these two days offer us is the opportunity to relearn what is at the heart of leadership. We live at a time where more has been said and spoken about about leadership than at any other point in human history. More books have been written about leadership than ever before. More universities, including our own fine establishment, are running courses on leadership than ever before. More opinions around leadership have been amplified than ever before. Some some helpful, some not so much. As you lead in the EU this year, whether that's in a faculty committee on a ministry specialist team as a small group leader or in some other capacity, what voices will set your agenda for the heart of leadership? Who's gonna be the model that you follow this year? Where are you going to turn to to calibrate your expectations around good leadership? One of the the privileges of these two days, as we've already heard, is that we get to learn from each other as we lead the EU. Look around. These are the people who, under God and in his strength, will be serving and leading the EU in 2023. And opportunities to gather like this with other leaders they're actually fairly few and far between. We're usually too busy just getting on with the job to meet with other leaders and reflect on the task of what we're actually doing, which makes these two days precious as we share together in our experiences and wisdom about what leadership looks like. So let me me encourage you as well to make the most of today and tomorrow. Get to know the other leaders in your faculty or on your team And get to know leaders outside of your own circles, too. It's in the meeting and hearing from each other that we get to appreciate the joys and challenges of leadership from different approaches and angles. But most of all, we want to hear from God and his word, don't we? And let him speak into and challenge and correct and reform and guide our expectations of leadership this year. Amidst the genuine joys and real delights that students find in leading in the EU. There are real challenges that we encounter in leadership as we heard just before. Challenges that were as real 20 years ago when I was a student as they are now. Self-doubt and imposter syndrome, constant comparison with other leaders, pride, fearfulness and timidity, self-interest in leadership, And some of these are the product of cultural trends which are all around us and yet we barely notice. But our expectations and experiences of leadership aren't only formed by what's outside of us out there. Our expectations and hopes and fears and mode of leadership is also shaped by what goes on in here, in the secret thoughts and and desires of our hearts. The prophet Jeremiah, you may may know, said that our hearts are Deceitful above all else. We can't just rely on what our desires and emotions tell us. And so, as we start a new year of leadership together, we desperately need to hear from God's word, don't we? Where does the Lord say the heart of leadership lies? And so, the plan is to spend some time tomorrow getting specific and practical on the heart of leadership. And today, we're going big picture. We're going to set a vision for leadership that comes out of God's own heart. And we've got to do it in this order, right? Because if we start with pragmatics, we'll end up with a picture of leadership that's all about skills and competency, but may actually say very little about the importance of character, say, or even what the purpose of leadership is. No, we need to start with what God says about leadership. Let Him set our, our vision, our agenda. There's a few different leadership paradigms that we could profitably explore in the Bible these two days. God's provision of judges and and kings to lead Israel in times of trouble. Or the wisdom of Jephro, Moses' father-in-law, who set up leaders in Israel. Or the trials and disappointment of Ezra and Nehemiah. But as leaders in the evangelical union, which really just means gospel union, we're going to start with Jesus and the gospel. Jesus turns our paradigm about leadership upside down. Actually, he turned lots of things upside down, right? And inside out as well. He said to love your enemy. How weird is that? Turn the other cheek when someone strikes you so they can strike again. Become like a child. That the meek and the poor are blessed. And leadership is another aspect of life where Jesus turns the world on its head. It's hard, really, to get more upside down than proclaiming that the first shall be last and the last first. But what we'll see this morning is that Mark gives us two points to help us as leaders from Mark 10. Two points which, if you have ears to hear, will help you avoid bashing and crashing your way through leadership, like the way I bash my knees on the bike. We need to maybe unlearn our expectations of leadership. And Jesus is the one we need to help us do that. And so Mark 10 gives us firstly a purpose and secondly a paradigm. A purpose and a paradigm. Firstly then, a purpose. In Mark 10 verse 32, we read Jesus' third prediction in Mark's gospel of his death. And Mark 10, he's more detailed and specific than he's been previously. He says what's going to take place. It's going to happen in Jerusalem. Jesus is going to be rejected by both the Jews and the Gentiles. Though rejected is maybe too mild a word, he's going to be condemned, a legal term which indicates that he'll be tried and executed within the criminal justice system. And Jesus gets pretty graphic in his prediction as well. He's going to be betrayed, mocked, flogged, spat upon. And what stands out against all these details is Jesus' own certainty that his death is neither a mistake nor incidental to his mission. He doesn't blunder his way into death as though it were unintended. Rather, his death is absolutely central to both Jesus' identity and purpose. And you can see that in the way that Jesus is described in verse 32. He's leading the way ahead of his disciples, not only leading the way to meet his death in Jerusalem. He walked with a purpose which left the disciples astonished, frightened and terrified. And there's a new piece of information that Mark gives us in chapter 10, which is not just that Jesus will die, of why Jesus will die. It's there in verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, the purpose that Mark 10 gives us is not actually about us. It's Jesus' own purpose. And what that means for leadership is this, the heart of leadership flows out of Jesus' own heart. His heart for the many, his heart for the lost. Jesus Christ came not to be served, but to serve. He didn't come to be waited on by a host of slaves in a palace like the other kings in his day. He came so that he might give his life. He's not just another leadership guru for you to follow and copy. And he's not just a model for you to imitate, a founder of a religious experience for you to emulate. Jesus' purpose, his mission, is to buy you out of captivity. That's what the word ransom meant in its context, to purchase the freedom of a slave. His purpose is to pay for your release from sin and death, paying for your life with his own life. He is for us both a substitute and a sacrifice. He swaps out your death for his death and sets you free from the guilt, penalty, and power of sin. Now the Son of Man had every right to expect honour and glory when he came into the world, to be waited on hand and foot, to be served. But Jesus didn't exploit that privilege Instead, he comes to us as the suffering servant who lays down his life for others, who shoulders the sin and brokenness of his people so that he can pay the price to set us free, to set you free. He is the great king of the universe who made all things and called them into being, being servile, a slave. And if you're going to be a leader, a Christian leader among God's people, then you need to let this truth shine its light into your heart. This is the foundation of your leadership. This is a truth, actually, that you never graduate from. Some of you will graduate from your degree this year. And for some of you, graduation means leaving behind what you learned at university. Now, Twenty years ago, I had to write essays about the cultural significance of handkerchiefs in the court of King Louis XIV. I have no idea what I wrote. I had no idea at the time, ever. But the gospel is not like that. The gospel is not something that we graduate from, that we leave behind. The gospel is something that we have to continually grasp. It requires a lifelong preaching of the gospel to your heart. Like when Paul prays for the Ephesians, that they will have the eyes of their hearts enlightened by God's love for them. And what the gospel teaches those of us engaged in the business of leading others is that before you serve anyone, Jesus first serves you. Jesus serves you. He paid for your sins and liberated you from death by ransoming your life with his very life. So that in order to understand the heart of leadership, we first need to understand Jesus' heart for us. Before you serve anyone, Jesus first serves you. And if you don't have that truth in place, like a great big rock on which you stand, then your leadership will be marked by either pride or despondency. Pride because when it goes well, hooray, you're doing it. Or despondency when it doesn't go well, when it doesn't live up to your dreams. This kind of sucks which really is just another version of pride because it's still all about you. I've been reading through The Cross of Christ by English pastor John Stott and it's been a while I've forgotten just how good it is really. It's so good and it struck me how helpful it is for leaders. It turns out that there's one book you should read in Christian leadership, it's the, the Cross of Christ. It will help you understand from lots of different angles what the cross achieved, and what cross-shaped leadership looks like. John Stott once said, the chief occupational hazard of leadership is pride. He goes on to say that with leadership often comes authority and influence. People listen to what you have to say. But according to Stott, authority and influence are safe only in the hands of of those who humble themselves to serve. For pride easily puffs up. It can make you use your leadership for your own purposes. You can use force or coercion to manage or manipulate others. What the gospel does is cultivate in us the humility we need to kill our pride. You see, it's only as you know the depths of your heart know in the depths of your heart, sorry, how desperately lost you are without Christ, yet at the same time so incredibly loved by him that he would die to ransom you, that the humility we need grows in us. Humility comes out of apprehending how incredible it is that Jesus died for us, that God loves us. And so grasping with your heart Jesus' death and resurrection for you is, is good for your soul, It will melt your heart. It will kill your pride. It will help you to humble yourself in leadership. It helps you actually to look with joy and thanksgiving to Jesus in all the highs and lows of life. For though he was Lord of all, Jesus became servant of all. He put on the apron of servitude, like in that little episode in John 13 where he washes the disciples' feet Jesus put on the apron of a slave. He cleansed the mess of your sin, and in doing so robbed the grave of its victory. You need to get the gospel if you're going to be a leader of God's people. And so let me ask you, O oh leaders of the EU, how will you keep beating your heart on the gospel in twenty twenty three? What's your plan for meditating on, reflecting upon and leading a life marked by thanks for Jesus' ransom for your life. There's no substitute, really, for reading through Scripture and meditating upon it, reading it and letting it sit in your mind so it fires and forms your imagination. And as leaders, you cannot have a light and cursory acquaintance with God's Word. If you're going to lead God's people, you need to know God's Word. It needs to be a rich and deep and fulsome relationship you have with the Word. You need to read it and mark it, learn it, and inwardly digest Scripture. So it's shaping you as a leader. Jesus' purpose is to ransom you from your sins. And in that purpose, Jesus sets us a paradigm For all who would be leaders among God's people. We see there in Mark 10 that Jesus is preparing to go to Jerusalem to hand himself over. And there's this terrible irony in Mark 10. Jesus is fixed with one mind. His face set towards Jerusalem. And the disciples who are in short time going to abandon him. They think it's going to be a coronation in Jerusalem. They're getting ready for the party and for the distribution of power. James and John, two of Jesus' most trusted disciples, they try to get a head start than everyone else. They come to Jesus and ask for special privileges for themselves. They want the number one and number two spots in Jesus' cabinet when he gets authority and power in Jerusalem. And when the other disciples hear about it, they're outraged. And the result is this embarrassing and childish display of jealousy among the disciples. But it's against this bickering and quarrelling that Jesus introduces into the world an altogether new style of leadership. Look with me at verse 42. You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The problem isn't that there are some people in roles of leadership and authority, and others who aren't. There's nothing wrong with rulers and and leaders. And aspiring to greatness isn't wrong either. No, the contrast that Jesus draws is fundamentally in how the Gentile leaders go about leading. Jesus says that among the Gentiles, that is, among the nations and just the general way of things in the world, that their high officials, literally their great ones, exert their power over others. They're harsh and excessive in the way that they use their power. What does that look like? What does it mean to lord yourself over others? Well, if you go back to verse 33, Jesus has kind of given us an example of what what it looks like. He said, speaking of the nations, that the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the nations, the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. The great ones of the world use their power to subjugate and coerce others, even to the point of robbing people their very lives. Violence and fear become their tools for desperately clinging to their power, to their lives of luxury and control. Their greatness often was measured by the number of people they commanded. Now, one of the the podcasts that I listen to regularly is called The Rest is History by British historians Tom Holland and Dominic Sandbrook, and they had an episode just last week about the real Downton Abbey, the story of British aristocrats and their servants at the start of the 20th century. In the early 1900s, they said more people, especially women, were employed as domestic servants than any other job in the UK. Among the aristocracy, it was a mark of prestige and power to have lots and lots and lots of servants, even if you didn't really need them. And the podcast told the story of Lord Curzon, who was one of the great ones in the UK a century ago. He'd run the British Empire in India and later narrowly missed out on becoming prime minister. And one time he found himself in a situation where he was too hot at home and he didn't know how to open the window. He didn't know how to open it. It was too high and mighty for that. And for some reason, he couldn't get hold of one of his many, many servants. And so what did Curzon do? He picked up a log from near the fire, and he threw it through the window, smashed it open. And he was so proud of the fact that he didn't know how to do a servant's job that he boasted about it. And so we have this story today. Jesus says, not so with you. In God's kingdom, greatness is not measured in the number of people who serve you, nor are leadership and authority, things that we flaunt. There's no space for us to be harsh and excessive with our leadership. Instead, Jesus says, greatness is found in service. Leadership is about Service. But Jesus pushes us a little further to a place that we might find actually offensive. He says in verse 44 whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. And we naturally react against that, I think, a slave. Slavery is a scourge, right? That's a terrible existence for people. We are right to rejoice in the efforts of our evangelical forebears 200 years ago. We acted to end the global slave trade. And we're right, too, to lament that there are more slaves in the world today than there were when William Wilberforce and his friends campaigned against slavery. Slavery is a scourge. And it's a blight on our city and our nation that slavery still exists in our economy. Slavery was equally a scourge in the first century, but a, a widely practiced and accepted one. No one really knows because no one bothered to count, but the best estimates suggest that around 15% of the population in the Roman Empire were slaves. And while some slaves had sold themselves into slavery in order to pay off their debts, most slaves in the Roman world became slaves through Rome's subjugation of conquered nations or kidnapping or by being born into slavery. To be a slave was to have no legal personhood, You were a non-person. As one historian of Rome has said, the slave has no personality. He does not own his body. He has no ancestors, no name, no goods of his own. Now, there were exceptions to this, and some slaves could, in theory, buy their freedom. But not all of them. To be a slave was to be subject to the whims of your master, and you were vulnerable to all kinds of exploitation corporal punishment, and even death. In other words, slavery seems to be as far away from greatness as you can get. But if Jesus himself is our paradigm, our model, the one who came to serve rather than be served, then service and slavery go together with greatness and leadership, don't they? Greatness in the Christian community is marked by humble, self-effacing servanthood, modelled on Jesus' own selfless devotion to the good of others. He loved us fully, he said. In John's Gospel, Jesus said that no slave is greater than his master. Or in Philippians 2, we read that rather than exploiting his equality with God, Jesus did what? He became a slave. He died a slave's death. That's what crucifixion was for. He was hung on a cross, after which God highly exalted him. He turned the idea of slavery on its head, and it's why the word slave is constantly used by, to describe the Christian life. Mary, Jesus' mother, says, Here I am, a slave of the Lord. Let it be to me as you have said. In Titus, Paul calls himself a slave of God, as does James the brother of Jesus. Paul also calls himself a slave of Christ, as does Peter, actually, and Jude. In fact, all Christians are called to be slaves of one another. And given the the background of slavery, that might sound like a scary prospect. But Jesus has turned slavery on its head, such that we have a master who's not petty, or insecure or harsh we have a master who willingly became a slave who was willingly humiliated in order to serve us that we might taste and share in his glory and so in god's economy service and greatness go together and that's the paradigm that jesus has blazed for us in his life giving death for our sins or as the Solomon Islands has so elegantly put it on their coat of arms, to lead is to serve. Oh. That's a coat of arms. I feel like you might suspect I made it up, but that's real. <clears throat> to lead is to serve. And you've just got to trust of coat of arms, right? That's got a crocodile and a shark on it. To lead is to serve. And so as we move towards the end and start wrapping up, let's put this practice this paradigm into practice what does this this mean for you as a leader a paradigm that Jesus gives us for leadership it stands in contrast right to the request of John and James there's a real dichotomy and antithesis between a form of leadership that longs to sit on thrones of glory and one that looks to hang on a cross in service And I think we can see this dichotomy, this antithesis play itself out in two choices which confront those who would lead God's people. The first is a choice between selfish ambition and sacrifice. When James and John say to Jesus, we want you to do for us whatever we ask, they were seeking to exalt themselves, not raise others up. They're not thinking about service in that moment. In The Cross of Christ, John Stott says that it was the most blatant, self-centred prayer ever prayed. And yet the world, and sadly even the church, is full of people who pray to God like this, expecting God to do whatever they ask. People who lord it over others, who are hungry for honour and prestige, who measure life by their achievements and success. You value people based on what they can do for them. Jesus said, not so among you. And if you want to be a great leader, then you need to cultivate a servant's heart. If service or slavery is at the heart of leadership, then character actually is more important than anything else you do. More important than any other work you do in your life. We see this in the Bible time and time again, that if you don't have the right character, if your life isn't marked by a sacrificial servant-hearted love for others, then, in the words of 1 Corinthians 13, you're a nothing. You're a zero. You might be the most charismatic and engaging of small group leaders so that there's a long line to get into your Bible study because of how... Engaging and good to get to know you games are. But if you don't have a servant heart, forget about it. You might be the most magnetic and mesmerising and logical of speakers. You're so good that the Kuzmin team has lined you up to headline their next EU Sumsar Christianity and Islam debate for the next five years. But if you don't have a servant heart, your glory is empty and vain. You might run a big specialist team in fact you run the most amazing conference ever and everyone knows about it and they still talk about it 10 years later but if you dominate or control or bully the people on your team it's my way or the highway baby then jesus says you're not great actually you're just like the nations that drove him to the cross your task as a leader who follows a crucified Lord, is to lovingly serve others, to put the comfort and interest of others ahead of your own preferences and desires. It means you won't always get to do what you want to do. Sometimes you'll even have to do things that you don't want to do at all. But we're called to steward our leadership and sacrifice our preferences for the good of others as we seek to grow all the more in maturity in Christ. Or as Paul puts it in Philippians 2, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of the other. So there's a choice between selfish ambition and sacrifice. And the second choice is between power and service. The sons of Zebedee weren't seeking only honour, but also power. And that's not really that surprising, right? Because power is one of our greatest temptations. And if you're a Sydney Uni student, there's a lot of power that's on offer to you. The world offers you so much influence and power and honor, doesn't it? After all, you're attending the number one university in Australia for graduate employability, whatever that means. And out of all the world, UCD graduates are the fourth most employable. I think the other three are all American universities. So higher than graduates from Oxford or Harvard or Cambridge and Melbourne University. Even our arts graduates get jobs. It's a miracle. (laughs) Come, Come and study here, says the university, and see what impact you can make on the world. Leadership for good starts here, right? Because the doors of the cultural and financial and medical and teaching and political worlds are open to you. And it can't it bears out more Australian Prime Ministers have studied at Sydney Uni than any other university, twice as many UC grads than Melbourne Uni grads, and eight times as many PMs have been Sydney Uni grads compared to UNSW. That's not that surprising. <laughs> it's a new university, right? But those who, those who take up the way of the cross will seek to serve rather than be served. Any influence they acquire, it isn't an end in itself, but used in the service of others. Their whole life is pointed towards humble, gentle, loving service, not oppressive power. They're not trying to feather their own nest and hold on to power so they can keep it for themselves. And in the EU, there's two different modes of ministry that we've adopted which seek to put Mark 10 into practice. And as you lead in your different ways in the EU this year, I think they're both worth your study and attention. The first is our partnership model of ministry in the EU between students and and staff. Over the last 93 years of the EU's history, there's been this developing and growing and evolving partnership between the students of the EU and staff workers who've been invited by the students to help the EU fulfil the three objects. And it's developed into a genuine partnership at every level of the EU. In first year Bible study groups, on specialist ministry teams, on faculty committees, at an executive level, students and staff work together in leading the EU. Now, there are some obvious power differences in the partnership. An EU staff worker is typically older and more experienced in ministry than most students is one example. And that's something that I feel. This is my 11th year of working alongside the EU's post-grad faculty. With a decade's worth of experience, it could be very easy for me to just dominate the leadership team because supposedly I've seen it all before. It could be very easy for me to leave no room for students to take real responsibility. The key to our partnership is trust. Lots and lots of trust. Trust that neither students nor staff want to lord it over each other, that neither of us seek to be too overbearing or too passive in our partnership, but generally seek to be servant-hearted in our ministry together. And hopefully you'll see this in action across this year, and it's worth pondering how this commitment to not lording it over to working together in partnership, how that might be translated into our churches and other ministries. The second mode where you'll see Mark 10 in action is in the EU's commitment to serving the less reached and the less resourced. Obviously there's other theological values that underpin this too, but I think Jesus' paradigm of service here is actually quite essential. We seek to serve the less reached and the less resourced here in Sydney and around the world not because we're from Sydney University and we're so talented and awesome and they would be lucky to have us. No, no, no. We serve the LRLR in genuine gospel freedom because we have a sense of the the need and opportunity where people have little to no access to Jesus or where God's people have little to no access to fellowship or sound teaching or theological training. The truth is that God has incredibly blessed and gifted us at Sydney University with resources like people and training. And we seek to share those treasures with those who don't have what we have. Rather than clinging to what God has given us, we seek to share what God has entrusted to us. We're not trying to come in on a white horse to rescue the LR and LR, but we come to serve To give what really is God's to God's people. And Jesus' paradigm of leadership is about serving those who are weak and unimpressive in the eyes of the world, and giving generously and sacrificially of yourself so that others might share in what you have. Serving the LRLR might not be a great move for your CV, it might mean you end up in a place that's not really that desirable. But if Jesus has ransomed you from death and sin, he's loved you to such an extent that you can share in everything that belongs to him, it means you're also free to give what you have in the service of those who don't have. These are choices between, on the one hand, true greatness, real ambition, found in Christ like humble and joyful service of others, or on the other hand, a cheap, in shabby little ambition focused on your own power and self. These are the choices between the way of the crowd, the sit of your right and left hand Lord, or the way of the cross. And truth be told, leadership like this, it's not exactly a strategy. This is just our way in the world as we're conformed to the cross. For servant, leadership wasn't a strategy for Jesus. It's who he is. When Jesus talks about his own heart, he describes his own very core, his very being as gentle and lowly. He's the master who puts on the apron of the slave, who cleans the grit and the dirt and the literal crap off the disciple's feet, including the one who's about to betray him. Whenever Christians are haughty, when they use their power to coerce or shame others in leadership, we're actually betraying who Jesus is, our gentle and lowly Lord. No, this is not a a leadership strategy from Jesus. This is who he is. And if you're going to lead God's people, you need to first understand God's own heart. And so as we wrap up, and as we wrap up both talks, we're going to spend some time in reflection and prayer. Tomorrow you'll have some time in smaller groups to reflect and discuss over things. But today the Leadership Sum team are giving you time to reflect and pray just on your own. You won't have to share your reflections with anyone. We're going to give you 10 minutes to just sit, read over the passage, and reflect on the heart of leadership. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. There's going to be some reflection questions that appear on the screen. Take some time to think and pray. And we'll regroup in about 10 minutes when Jordan comes up and we sing.